Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And our topic today is school closures. And Jack, you and I live in Massachusetts, obviously not together. <laughs> we happen to be in, in a part of the country that has a lot of very old schools. I drove by one on my way here today. I'm guessing it was probably built in the 30s. I could see the cornerstone. Back when they were modeling everything after factories. That would be the very day. And it got me thinking about how how permanent schools seem like they were intended to be. At least relative to other kinds of public institutions. Well, you're an education historian. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. We're at a time now where closing schools is seen as an effective policy instrument that if you just close the bad schools and replace them with good schools, pretty soon all the kids will be in high-performing seats. It's an interesting question, and I think that if you were to travel back in time, via time machine or just imagination, that uh, the thought of a school ever closing would be unthinkable to the people who had worked so hard to establish it and to keep it functioning. Um, you know, Even school consolidation, which happened primarily in the early 20th century, as one-room schoolhouses and other very small schools were consolidated into larger schools, primarily in rural communities, even school consolidation uh, elicited really tremendous pushback from communities which felt attached to the schools that they themselves had attended, but as well uh, to these public squares uh, that schools continue to function as in our in our present lives. So you know from uh, the Somerville podcast studio, we can look across the street at a school uh, where there are community meetings held where uh, there's a pool in the basement where uh, most of the children in the community end up learning how to swim, uh, where basketball gets played in the evening, where local skateboarders end up. Uh, someday, if Somerville ever depaves, uh, we may even have a patch of green space where people can go and have a picnic or just spread out and uh, and enjoy a beautiful New England fall day. Uh, so, you know, schools historically have served two purposes. One of them is educating the young people in a community. And of course, uh, having moved through those schools, people become attached to them. And if they stay in the community, continue to think of those schools as an important community resource. And then also the way that we use schools, at least public schools, at least neighborhood public schools, uh, as broader public resources beyond uh, serving a function in terms of educating students ages 5 through 18 uh, as places where the community can gather, particularly as we have fewer and fewer public spaces, uh, a truly public space um, where you don't really have to ask anybody other than your uh, your fellow citizens for permission. I can imagine that some people listening to this might accuse you of having an overly romantic notion of public schools as community gathering spots and hubs of local democracy. But our special guest this episode discovered that part of what makes school closures so wrenching is that local residents see the loss of their school as being about so much more than just losing a building. 
We are joined now by Sally Nuama. Sally studies the political fallout from closing schools and the relationship between school closures and democracy. She started studying school closures while she was in Chicago working on her PhD at Northwestern. Then she went to Princeton for a postdoc, and she's about to start at Duke. Welcome, Sally. Thank you. I'm really excited to chat with you all today about this important topic. Sally, I want you to go back several years now to where this story starts. So you're back in Chicago, you've graduated from George Washington University, and you've just started grad school, and you happen to drop by a community meeting in the neighborhood where you grew up on Chicago's near north side, and residents there are discussing the city's plans to close a local school, just one of many schools that was that was on the chopping block back in 2013. What did you hear? As I attended the meeting... Um, I saw how parents and neighborhood uh, community members spoke about the potential of the closure as something that really seemed like life or death. Um, people were, you know, really screaming at the top of their lungs about sort of the effects that this potentially had or were frustrated by the fact that it wasn't clear that the person who were making that decision um, didn't see it quite that way in the way that they saw it. Um, you know, that they were really losing a community institution, um, which it was unclear that they wouldn't get back or even be, it would even be replaced by anything that was similarly viable, as viable. Um, so I sat there and I thought about what I was studying. I thought about kind of where I was at and the tools that I had learned. And I realized that this was something that not only was what people not studying that needed to be studied um, and that these stories all people are going through needed to be highlighted and understood. It's like really part of understanding how to give voices to people who are being affected by these policies every day um, and view these things as serious matters. And yet so many people uh, didn't really seem to know about it. Um, so I decided then that it was something that I would want to focus on for my work, uh, not only as like a person who grew up um, in Chicago, born and raised in a low-income African-American community, um, but also as someone who cares about equality um, and justice and democracy. Talk a little bit more about why residents of the neighborhood would see the closing of a school as a life-or-death issue, as you describe it. When I heard people say this is sort of a, you know, a life-or-death matter, I was sort of, at first, like, okay, I, that drove the question, right? I was like, why do people view it this way? You know, why are people protecting institutions that someone else might interpret as, um, uh, as you know, failing. Um, and so that drove the whole, the entire project. And as I engaged in the research and actually spoke to people who were affected by these policies and looked at my community and how it was changing, um, I started to notice the connections that people were making simply by listening to what they were saying. So people would constantly refer to the fact that um, if this community institution is closed down, it would affect their ability to uh, have child care. It would affect their ability to have employment. It would affect uh, their ability to live in a neighborhood that is safe because now you have a closed-down structure, right, that's acting as an eyesore. I would hear people specifically say that, um, that people would think that they failed, right? Their kids would think that they failed, because the institutions in which their kids attended were being closed down and they couldn't protect it, right? So this had to do not just with these social and economic issues, but also in terms of what people view as their 
in the what they're modeling, right? What they're teaching to the to their younger people, what they're able to protect uh, for the next generation to come, right? They were losing assets that were pushed down to them from prior generations, especially because schools have always been at the center of civil rights fights, right? Um, and the in the fight to equality. So it was very clear just from talking to people um, and being engaged at these meetings. Um, that people themselves would express sort of the consequences, the larger consequences of what the closure of the school means, what it symbolizes, and the direct resources that it takes from the community. Um, and so in the absence, absence of that institution, uh, the question became sort of what else do people have, right? Um, and the alternative also wasn't clear to them, not from previous experience and not in the way it was proposed currently, so it became a real question of how people would be able to continue to engage in the pursuit of equality, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of, you know, um, a flourishing life uh, when they don't have a mechanism, right, um, or the mechanism that has been so central uh, to to their mobility um, and to the longevity of the community up until this point. And in many cases, represents the last institution to do this work. Whenever you see a big battle over closing schools, like the one in Chicago back in 2013, inevitably you'll hear people ask, why would people fight so hard to save a failing school? But as you found out in your research, that question really misses something fundamental about how residents in these neighborhoods see public schools and the role that they play. Uh, What you find is that almost always communities, when they are opposed to Closure, um, it's not that they want to go to bad schools, right? They're rational human beings. Um, it has more to do with the larger historical, social, and community-based role that schools have played. And so I want to actually speak specifically about that because I think it gets um, stated a lot, but we don't actually know what that means. <laughs> so if you look at African-American communities in particular, uh, public schools have uh, had a long history of being sort of the first public institutions in which African-Americans got access and that led to mayoral positions and um, and other kinds of political positions thereafter. But not just that, uh, schools historically have been a main central mechanism for for the black middle class, right? A lot of people end up in black middle class status after deindustrialization through jobs in the education sector. The same applies for uh, black businesses. So who, um, after, you know, um, there becomes a black mayor in D.C., you know, he starts to give contracts to lunch services, to janitorial services, to black businesses, right? Um, and then, so schools become, and then in the 60s and 70s and, and there, thereafter, they also become central hubs and engines for organizing, right, uh, for, part- for political participation um, and developing civic skills outside of school hours, right? They become a home base for that. So all those things I mentioned actually aren't related directly to achievement, but play an important social, economic, and political role in these communities, especially after the industrialization. Um, and it's partly or in part why a school and education policy has always had sort of a central role in narratives around civil rights, right? And and um, and the social mobility of like minority especially black populations. Um, and so when you think about public schools and you measure their their um, uh, strengths uh, based on these, like you said, more narrow measures such as performance, um, and your replacements um, don't account for these larger social, economic, and political roles that schools have always played in these communities and continue to, um, and then it actually undermines sort of why people 
think that these institutions are important um, and why they're something that they're still fighting for. Um, and it actually forces them to look as if they're not being rational and trying to protect bad schools, quote-unquote, um, because those larger uh, civic um, functions aren't uh, being accounted for. Sally, that makes me think of one of the policy consequences that you write about in uh, your work, and that is the way that school closure can end up undermining public faith in public institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk through that a little bit, and particularly in why it matters that people would have uh, faith in public institutions and why the schools would have uh, such a critical role to play in particular communities with regard to um, giving people a positive kind of experience with mm-hmm. uh, public institutions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a really great question because as a political scientist, part of why I study education is because I actually believe um, that uh, people get some of their first experiences with politics through their experiences in education, right? There's almost no institution that people interact with on a daily life and, and over time than schools, right? So their experiences in schools likely shape their larger political attitudes and engagement with politics. Um, and, and, and that's important because when we think about representation and policy response, we need people to be engaged, especially those in the most marginalized communities, in order to get, you know, to solicit policy response so their, so their opinions can be represented. So when you take something that is, you know, uh, can be perceived as a blunt instrument like school closure and you bring that into a community and it kind of becomes a microcosm for democracy. So they go to these community meetings, right, which becomes a central mechanism for being able to waste one's opinion on public schools uh, because the school district wants to be perceived as collecting community input. So that becomes sort of a, a little microcosm for, for, for democracy. Um, and when people engage in that experience, they get cues and lessons about how much their representatives value them, how much their opinion matters, you know, if their opinion is actually going to shape the outcome of this. And when those experiences are negative, you know, one would expect that that actually has the larger consequences on their ultimate perceptions of politics their perceptions of their status as citizens, their perceptions of how government and politics values them, their trust in political institutions, and that will ultimately shape their desire to continue to participate because they may not think that it's a viable way to be represented or for their opinions to be that, um, to be shaped in actual policy decisions. It seems to me there's a particularly dark consequence here, which is that not only when you're closing a neighborhood school down, are you then uh, giving people a kind of negative interaction uh, with a public institution, but you are also then uh, disempowering them in some way. Uh, You are failing to bring them into the fold. And in so doing, uh, you are ensuring that an unrepresentative form of government continues, uh, which just makes it even more likely that future policy decisions will be made that do not align with community interests. And so you can see this feeding back on itself over time where people don't feel attached to public institutions and public life, are less represented, uh, and as a consequence, end up being less attached to public institutions and public life. Sally, what's so fascinating about your research is that you've actually been trying to measure the political fallout from school closures in these neighborhoods. Tell us a little about what you've been finding so far. What we're basically finding is that uh, support among the African-American community for the Democratic Party 
um, in area, specifically in areas where closures occurred, um, it decreased support um, in a, a really substantial way, um, and that people initially participate. Um, so this is sort of similar to what um, uh, Jack was saying. They initially participate, and then eventually they stop participating. So in the election following the closure, which was 2015, people came out. Um, uh, but then you don't see them come to the sort of local elections thereafter, the general election, so much. And so this is kind of consistent with what we find qualitatively, is that there's sort of this initial, like, you know, we have to do something about this. And then people sort of consistently have these negative experiences. So in the long term, they don't participate as much. Um, and so uh, I guess it's kind of back to where I started. Um, you know, they, um, in terms of the implications for uh, the outcomes three, four years down the line, uh, you actually see uh, lower levels of participation, higher levels of negative attitudes towards people who are in the same parties in which most of these people identify, which is the Democratic Party. Um, and uh, beyond that, you actually uh, see in general that these communities just are actually just further losing population. There's uh, less um, will or, or, or there's less uh, faith in the traditional public school system across these populations because they're afraid that they're going to be, like, um, betrayed again, right? They're going to have to move schools again, um, and that's very volatile. Um, so that also shapes their relationship to schools. And, and this is not directly related to politics, but it is related to the economic piece that I mentioned before that is, of course, playing a big role. You see that... Um, the um, percent of African-American teachers in Chicago has declined by 40%. Uh, but we see that four years down the line, um, you know, it re- outcomes are affected in terms of politics. Economic outcomes are affected in terms of uh, job, and, job and participation rates and attitudes towards the political system, specifically policymakers, continue to decline. Sally, you started out this episode by talking about returning to the neighborhood where you grew up on Chicago's near north side for a community meeting. There were meetings like that all over the city in the lead up to the school closures. And one of the most fascinating findings of your research deals with that brief window of intense activism and its aftermath. Tell us more. There becomes this interesting period of about three months when there's a lot of resources that are pushed into communities that typically wouldn't have them to participate. So they want people in the community to engage, so they are given buses. Their school officials are brought to them, right, which typically would have to come downtown. They're actually brought to the community. Um, Community institutions are given resources to facilitate these community meetings. Um, And so, um, and people are engaging or benefiting from these resources during this short, concert period of time, and they develop these interesting set of skills. Um, that even despite having might still adopt government or or politics thereafter, they actually develop these skills that they can use um, in fights and that they some do use. So what you see is like you look at a place like Philadelphia where Helen Gim becomes an activist for parents during closures and then becomes elected um, you know, as a as a local representative thereafter, right? Because of a proficiency that she built during that time. Or you see how resources that organizations use for all kinds of other things um, end up being, for a short period of time, concentrated on the fight for closure. Um, and so new um, members of the community are, are kind of lifted up and trained and turned into activists. 
Um, and they go on to take other policies even after closure ends, right? Um, so there might be parents against closures. And then once closure sort of becomes uh, a done deal, then that organization evolves to become the organization around electing the school board, having elected school board, excuse me. And so there is a way in which um, some of the, you know, some of what this does allude to is that um, if there are resources more consistently provided to these communities to engage, that even if it's not at the ballot box, people in the community will engage in actions that have to do with their sort of everyday lives. Um, and what this sort of strange uh, experience of like fighting for something that you're being told is gone or it's going to be gone. <laughs> what that did um, is it provided sort of a, a a way to see what will happen when these communities have resources to actually participate and have access to those who who make these decisions. That was Sally Nuama describing her research on the political fallout from school closures. Sally has a PhD in political science from Northwestern University. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton, and next year she'll join the faculty at Duke. You can read all about her work on school closures on her website, Sally Nuama, that's N-U-A-M-A-H dot com. And Jack and I will be right back with a few final thoughts. So this whole episode has been about school closures in politics. And and as we often note in this program, there are now pretty stark political differences in terms of the kinds of school reform initiatives that are being pushed, right? So like vouchers are a beloved response on the right. But school closures really represent a democratic approach. This this model that I discussed at the very beginning where, where you have um, schools opening and closing all the time, that's really a, a way way of looking at schools and what they do that's much more identified with with education reformers who identify as democrats even progressive and i wonder if when they hear this if they might sort of take you know take a little pause at the fact that there are there are political implications and fallout that could potentially imperil their guys down the road you know, and one of the things that struck me here is the fact that, you know, people constantly lambast identity politics. But of course, there is a real truth there, which is that it is really hard to separate your politics out from your identity and your own experience. And of course, you know, one of the things that Sally's research shows is that uh, if you have no experiences with uh, government operating in a way that feels colonial to you, um, where government institutions and political institutions feel like they do not represent your best interests and your voice is not being heard, or it is being heard but only in a pro forma way, um, you are much more likely, I would imagine, to have faith in processes like school closure, as opposed to if your experience differs from that. Uh, you know, even if your school hasn't been closed down, but you've had negative uh, interactions with public institutions, or you have felt not included uh, because of some factor of your identity that would lead to that being systemic across you know, larger sections of the population, um, that that's going to impact how you feel about a variety of things. And that ultimately is going to play out politically. 
In her research, Sally identified a whole sort of set of of reasons why um, people of color in these communities would view public institutions, public schools as a really key component of democracy. And the interesting thing about that is that the things she identifies are really the same ingredients that reformers identify when they talk about the need to maybe shut down school boards or root out unions, that there's too much self-interest embedded in the in the system and that, you know, until you can get, you know, until people are willing to rip off the the band-aid and and take the hard steps, that you can't drive up student achievement as they would say it. And I think what she really turns up is how how connected all those things are and that you can't just shut down a school board and shutter schools without it affecting the larger democratic system that schools are part of. And ultimately it's also going to affect student achievement because you can imagine that a student who looks around and feels like his or her larger community uh, has been uh, decimated, right? That there's been divestment and that public institutions are no longer serving their best interests. You better believe that this student is going to come into school less motivated uh, and less invested in the process of education, less likely to believe that this is a process that is going to end up serving him or her well. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, if there are no further effects, even if it doesn't affect democracy, there's a kind of irony in that. Is it just me or do almost all of our episodes tend to end on a really bleak note? I I like to think that it's not that we're making things bleak. It's that we're making things more complicated. That could be our new motto. And on that note, you go first. I'm Jack Schneider. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. Thank you for listening to Have You Heard? And don't forget, if you like what you're hearing, drop by iTunes and leave us a review. Or wherever else you get your podcasts. Podcasts.